What's up, everybody? It's Joel B. here with another episode of my ethics podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a very simple method that you can use to test certain ethical claims or even certain philosophical claims. If you're one of my students, and even if you're not, it's great to have you here. I hope you'll stick around for more conversations. It goes without saying that we, all of us, constantly hear claims about the world. We hear people make assertions about the universe. Sometimes these are scientific claims, sometimes they're political, sometimes they're philosophical, and so on. However you want to carve up all these different claims, people make claims about the world all the time. And we need different methods for evaluating whether these claims are true, whether they're false, whether they're plausible. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to a method, a very simple method. I want to emphasize that it's very simple for evaluating ethical claims. And you can extend this to philosophical claims more broadly, but we're going to focus on ethical claims. So the method I want to introduce you to, and if you're if you're in my class right now, you already started practicing this, and we're going to use it throughout the entire semester. So what is this method? It is the method of counterexamples. The method of counterexamples. Let's back up and set some context. To understand what I mean by a counterexample, start with a non-ethical claim or a non-moral claim. For example, a really simple claim about the world. Suppose someone says, all swans are white. All swans are white. And you want to test this claim. There are different like experiments you could do to test this. There are different observations you could seek to make and so on. But all you need really to know whether this is true or false is to see if there is any non-white swan in the world. If there is even one non-white swan, that claim that all swans are white is false. So a blue swan, a pink swan, a black swan, a yellow swan, like any, any color of swan that isn't white will be a counterexample to that claim. And it's really simple, like that claim, all swans are white, implies that for any particular swan, it's going to be white. So even just finding one swan that's not white is a counterexample. And it shows that the, the claim is false or mistaken. Now, we can do a similar thing when evaluating moral or philosophical claims. So imagine the following conversation. A and B are chatting, and A says, I'm thinking about refraining from eating and purchasing factory farm meat. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And I think the reason is because the whole industry is notoriously cruel to animals. So A is going to stop eating factory farm meat because they think the industry is cruel to animals. Now B hears this argument and has the following response. If, if that's what makes you happy, go for it. But you know, if others enjoy eating factory farm meat, that's okay for them. You know, because whatever makes someone happy is morally okay for them to do. Okay, so both A and B are giving arguments here. They're not super deep arguments at this point. They haven't filled in the whole argument. There are a lot of like incomplete arguments here, suppressed premises or hidden premises. We'll talk about that later in the semester and maybe on this podcast. But for now, like I think you can see that these are arguments that are attempting to justify different conclusions. A is saying that we should stop eating factory farm meat, or at least that she's going to stop eating factory farm meat. And B kind of endorses that, but is like, you know, 
not everyone has to do that because, and here's the reason, whatever makes someone happy is morally okay for them to do. That is the key claim in B's argument. B's response hinges on this moral premise or this moral claim that happiness is sort of the key to figuring out what's morally okay. And if something makes you happy, then go for it. It's morally permissible for you to do it. Now, should we believe that premise? Should we believe that claim? What we can do is we can apply the method of counterexamples to test it. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to come up with really simple intuitive cases where it seems like that is false, like where something that would make someone happy is is just obviously or intuitively not morally okay to do. So here's one. Some people might find a lot of joy in behaving in sexist ways. But clearly, just finding joy in being a sexist does not make it okay, morally speaking, for one to be a sexist. One of you in class came up with a really simple example. Suppose someone takes a lot of joy and delight in in killing innocent people. That does not make it okay for them to do. And so when we look at these really simple cases, it seems very obvious that it's not true that whatever makes someone happy is morally okay for them to do. So think about it this way. Moral claims imply certain things about the world. They have implications. B's claim in the argument implies that sexism would be morally okay if it made you happy. So by finding that that the claim implies something really counterintuitive, we have some reason to doubt that it is true. Now, I want to be clear about this. Sometimes when we come up with counterexamples, they're, they're just, they're such good, such strong counterexamples that we can take them as really strong reason to reject a certain claim about morality. On the other hand, sometimes claims are really tricky and we might have a counterexample that we think puts pressure on that claim. It sort of pushes back against it and says, uh, you're, you're not as plausible as people think or, 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 or more modestly, the counterexample kind of makes us suspicious. So on the one extreme, you might have counterexamples that just totally destroy a view. And on the other hand, you might have counterexamples that kind of make us suspicious and, and invite us to think about that claim a little bit further. So in my view, the counterexample of like the person who is made happy by killing innocent people, that counterexample is like, it's it, for me, that's like really strong reason, almost conclusive reason to reject B's claim that whatever makes someone happy is morally okay for them to do. And later on, I'm going to explain something about counterexamples that I think we need to start developing as a class or as people who are engaged in philosophical conversations. But I think for now you see the idea. This is the method of counterexamples. It's not the only way of evaluating a philosophical claim or a moral claim, but it is a way. It's a very common way of starting the discussion. Sometimes claims, you know, you can really, it's, it's really easy to try to find counterexamples to them. And sometimes like moral claims, it's not. So let's go through a few more examples. These are ones that we talked about in my class, and I'll try to share some of the examples that you all came up with. So here's this claim. If an action makes a lot of people happy, then it is morally permissible to do. This is different than saying if the action makes you happy, then it's morally permissible for you to do. This is, this is saying if it makes a lot of people happy, then it's morally permissible to do. And I think a really good counterexample is something like this. Well, suppose enslaving people makes a lot of people happy. And at one point in U.S. history, I think it really did. That does not make it morally permissible. So we have this case 
that seems like it's intuitively going against what this this claim is saying. Um, one of you came up with a really clever example. You, you you said, imagine a scenario where a bunch of people who are in romantic relationships, committed romantic relationships, are having affairs behind their their partner's back, and and all these people who are having the affairs, like it's it's making them happy. So this like group affair is making a lot of people happy, but intuitively that's problematic. And this is not an argument against polyamory. It's because like an affair is presumably something that's non-consensual. Like your partner doesn't say, yeah, you can go and sleep with that person. So, so, so I think this is like a really good counterexample. thinking of, um, like multiple affairs that make a lot of people happy, but intuitively that's not morally permissible. So I thought that was a good counterexample. So let's go to another claim. You should never cause another person pain. You should never cause another person pain. And a number of you had really good counterexamples to this one. The one that I, I that comes to mind for me and someone said it was something like, well, imagine you're a doctor and you have to perform a surgery that's going to cause someone pain. Um, clearly, that doesn't it doesn't seem like that's morally problematic or you shouldn't do it. In fact, sometimes you should do it if causing pain is going to save someone's life. So I thought that was a, a really good response counterexample to that claim. Now we're going to move into some counter, some claims that are a little harder to find counterexamples to. So here's a third one. All forms of economic inequality are unjust. So you hear someone say that all forms of economic inequality are unjust. And a potential counterexample, I'm going to start saying a potential counterexample because we're moving away from claims that are easier to find counterexamples for to ones that are a little harder. We're starting to wade out further into deeper water. And so, like I said, the method of counterexamples doesn't work for every philosophical claim or every moral claim. Sometimes it's really easy and you can just apply it pretty straightforwardly. But sometimes when the ethical claim is more complicated, it's not clear that you can just come up with easy counterexamples. So all forms of economic inequality are unjust. And an economic inequality might be like income inequality, wealth inequality, and so on. And I think one of you came up with this case. Well, suppose there are two people who have unequal incomes, but that's just because one of them, through their own choice, decided to work harder and take opportunities that came their way. Whereas the other person, you know, just kind of relaxed. They weren't interested in working really hard. They weren't interested in climbing the corporate ladder, advancing their career, taking all these opportunities. They're, they're, they're comfortable with a materially simple life. And so because of their own personal choices, one of them <clears throat> is more well-off than the other. And I think a lot of us, when we think about cases like that, we think, oh, that, that doesn't seem unjust. So those cases seem to be counterexamples to this claim. Now let's go to one that was, it's, it's pretty tricky and philosophers debate this one a lot. I mean, there's a whole philosophical literature, a mountain of literature on this. So I don't know that we're going to find an easy counterexample to it, but here's the thing. <clears throat> sometimes the counterexample is devastating, like I said, and sometimes it just kind of makes us suspicious and gets us thinking about it further. It's like a first step in philosophical evaluation. So having said that, here's the final one. <clears throat> if someone's actions are beyond their control, they cannot be held morally responsible for any harmful outcomes that result from those actions. 
If someone's actions are beyond their control, they cannot be held morally responsible for any harmful outcomes that result from those actions. If you need to pause the podcast at this point, go for it. I want you to think about this. How would you come, like what kind of counterexample would you come up with? Here's one that I think is a good starting point for for possibly creating a counterexample. Imagine that someone is driving under the influence of, um, they, 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 they went to the bar and got drunk and they're driving under the influence. And just imagine that their actions are, are beyond their control. They're, they're super drunk and they hit a pedestrian and this pedestrian is injured. Can we hold that person morally responsible for what they did? Well, let's fill in the story. Just imagine that this person knew that they could get drunk enough to cause harm to other people. But as they're throwing beers back, they decide, ah, you know, who cares? Like, forget about it. And so they're, they're kind of reckless. They're negligent. There's an opportunity for them to hang their keys up, to put their keys in that little bowl, you know, that you like where you, everyone throws their keys in so no one's like driving after they've been drinking. And they don't. They just kind of are negligent and pass it over. So at every step leading up to them getting drunk, they've been negligent, reckless, thoughtless, careless. And I think a lot of us intuit that even though they're out of control when they're drunk driving, we can still hold them morally responsible for the injury they cause because there was a point prior to that where they made some decisions, some problematic decisions that were, you know, that what were under their control. And so they become morally responsible for things they do even when they don't have control because they made bad decisions when they did have control. Someone in class <clears throat> came up with an example in their small group. It was sort of like a sort of like a, a fictitious example. And I just want to say fictitious examples are perfectly fine because we're, we're kind of exploring our concepts. So that's, it's, it's fine to start with a fictitious example. So imagine they said, I think it was something like this, that um, you take a potion that you know is going to turn you into a werewolf. And sure, when you're a werewolf, like you have no control and you go and like ravage a village and eat some sheep and, you know, cause mayhem. Those actions are out of your control, but intuitively, intuitively, we can hold you morally responsible because you made decisions that you knew were going to put you in that position. So you could you could foresee the harmful consequences of your decisions and you did it anyway. And I actually think that's kind of a cool, that's kind of a cool attempt at a counterexample. Now, philosophers are going to have all sorts of interesting responses. They might say, they might say something like, well, you, you know, actually what you're intuiting is not that you're account, not that you're morally responsible for the actions that you did when you were drunk or when you were a werewolf. Rather, you're actually morally responsible for everything you did when you were sober, when you did have control of your actions. And so we're actually holding you morally responsible for all those things. So there are different ways to respond. I won't say anything more about that because I'm trying to keep this episode super short. But I hope you see that the method of counterexamples can be a really useful tool for evaluating ethical claims. All right. In conclusion, here are two rules to keep in mind as you come up with counterexamples. Keep them concrete and keep them uncontroversial. Concrete and uncontroversial. A concrete counterexample fills in the details with a specific thing rather than something more more general or vague. So 
the example involving slavery, the, the example involving torturing, say, an innocent child, those are going to be good counterexamples to the claim that if something makes you happy, it's morally permissible to do. They're concrete. They fill in the details. It's easy to see that they are, in fact, counterexamples. Second, counterexamples that are uncontroversial are best to use. For example, if I try to come up with a counterexample that involves a political situation or appeals to um, like a contentious or controversial view about rights or religion um, or justice, like it, it, I might find that persuasive as a counterexample, but other people might not. And so in general, I think it's best if, if we're, especially if we're trying to convince other people that their argument is, is maybe mistaken um, or we're trying to convince them of our position, we should come up with counterexamples that don't appeal to controversial stances. So, for example, you might appeal to something involving abortion as a counterexample to a claim, but it's just that there's so much division about abortion that it, it may not be a very effective counterexample in your conversation. And so appeal to something that everyone at the table can get on board with, something like, you know, it's wrong to torture innocent children or the badness of slavery or something like that. That's one that's going to help everyone see that, yeah, we, we in fact have a counterexample to this claim. The other thing is, you know, sometimes when we're appealing to like political positions or we're appealing to our religious positions when we're forming a counterexample, um, there's a chance that we're influenced by prior commitments. We're not really seeing the the truth of the matter. We're, we're kind of, we're, our perspective is shaded or biased by our prior commitments. And so an uncontroversial counterexample arguably is going to help us see more clearly that a certain claim is mistaken rather than just perpetuating something we already believe. So keep them concrete, keep them uncontroversial. Thanks for joining in on the conversation if you're one of my students, I look forward to using this method of counterexamples throughout the semester. And if you're not one of my students, it's been great to have you join us, and I hope you'll stick around for more.